You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. It's a joy to watch how people give of their, their time and their talent. And of course, we're blessed when people give of their treasure as well. But we have all sorts of folks this morning who I, I got to see coming in early to help with coffee and, and serving on the team. What a great job that they did on the team this morning, right? And greeting and and people helping in the sound booth and all the things that people are doing here. It's just a blessing to see how people are using their talents and their time and their treasures to serve the Lord. This morning we are in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. If you'd like to make your way there, and I apologize, I forgot to get the page number, but it's probably where we were last week or real close. So somewhere in the thousands range. Romans chapter 5, we're looking at verses 12 through 21. I'd like to begin by reading. It's a little bit larger section of text than we've been uh, looking at each week, but if you will read along, I think you'll be greatly blessed by it. So if you have your Bible open or your app open, I'll start in verse 12. God's Word says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people. Because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, because sin was not charged to a person's account when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more... Have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, help me to explain and to expound and to teach and to encourage and to correct and to rebuke. Lord, from your word, from this text, help us to see, Lord, exactly what you would have for us this morning. And God, may we not be indifferent to your word. Lord, I'm asking that you would press us one way or another to embrace, or Lord, I I pray that you wouldn't, but to reject. God, to accept and live in, or Lord, be honest about what it is we're doing and push away from. God, it's my prayer that you will draw us to you, that you will save souls, that you will redeem lives. 
God, it's a, it's a section of scripture that I hope, I pray that you will aid me in communicating well, and you will aid all those listening to hear well, to think through, and to stand on. Lord, we praise you, and we greatly anticipate what you have from your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What physical trait did you inherit from your parents? Like, hopefully it's a good one. Hopefully you have that, that eye or the, the smile or one of those things. In my family, there was the Catherine nose, you know, that just sort of everybody had. I don't, it was, everybody looked the same. Have you ever seen one of those five-generation pictures? Like, five generations all in one picture, and you can clearly see they're all related. Like, oh, they all have that feature, right? Whatever it is, what feature did you inherit from your parents? Or what about the features you really don't want to inherit from your parents? Things like glaucoma or high blood pressure or, you know, shortness or whatever. Not saying shortness is bad. Maybe extra tallness is bad. You choose. What did you inherit from your family line? We just heard in this scripture, Paul just told us that every one of us inherited sin from our family line, and it goes all the way back to our first father, Adam. For five chapters, Paul has been arguing that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. For five chapters, he's been making the case the righteous will live by faith. That's Romans 1.17. He's going to continue making that case, but something's going to change drastically. In chapter 6, it begins... In a different way. He's no longer making the case. Starting in chapter 6, he's assuming you've accepted his argument. He's assuming that you are a believer and that now, as he moves forward, living by faith is actually the believer living out the faith that Christ is giving us to the very fullest. It's changing. He's moving on to sanctification. That is how Christians live out this faith they profess. So in a very serious way, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is the last call. This is it, at least in the way he structured his argument. This is the last point he's going to make to persuade the reader, you and, and me, to go from death to life. The rest of the book of Romans won't be of much help to the spiritually dead person after this, because everything moving forward is all about the one who's in Christ and now living life in Christ. Incidentally, I think it's really interesting as he moves into chapter 6, into sanctification, speaking to believers, that his very first illustration draws from the idea of baptism. Right from the get-go, we've, we've moved from get saved to now here's an illustration of how we've been baptized, how we've been united in Christ's death and united in his resurrection as we see demonstrated in baptism. So we get to go there next week. So incidentally, I really hope that maybe some of you might feel compelled to be baptized and we set up the tub next week. Maybe we'll just set it up for the heck of it and see what happens. Maybe the week after, right? Because that's where he's going. I would love to see some of you be baptized next week. Let me know if that's you. Anyway... He's moving now into this last call point. He's been making argument after argument after argument, building to the same thing. And in this particular text, verses 12 through 21, this last ditch effort, he's going to show us something that theologians call imputation. Imputation. Imputation is the 
attribution of a verdict or quality from one party to another. Okay, it's an adding on. It's not amputation. That's a taking away. It's imputation, adding on from one person to another. Adam's guilt is imputed to all of his creation. Okay, it's known as original sin. And Jesus, who suffered as a substitute in our place, that was done because our sin was imputed onto him. And then Jesus imputes his righteousness onto us. Imputation. That's the word. That's what we see argued here. And when we utterly understand, when we completely see Adam's transgression imputed onto us, then we will utterly understand, we will completely see the need for Jesus' better gift and what he imputes onto us. And then we'll give our life to him. When we see it clearly, we really don't have a better alternative. So I'm going to take what we see here in turn. I'm going to take these two things. Adam which Paul does, and then Jesus. I'm going to follow Paul's line of thinking. We're just going to move right through it. And when I've gotten to the end of the argument, Paul's argument, my argument, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm, I'm, I'm giving this to you in advance. This is the question. Are you ready to be made righteous, or would you rather remain in death? At the end of my time, I'm going to ask you that question in all seriousness, and I'm going to hope that you will make a decision on that question. I don't want the question to come as a surprise. I want you to have the fullest opportunity to hear the argument in light of the question that is coming because I want you to move from death to life. What kind of pastor would I be if I didn't want that for you? But I also want the rest of the book of Romans to have value to you. It's about living in Christ. It it does you no good if you're dead in Christ, if you're not living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want what God has made possible for you, for you. That's my hope. That's why I'm telling you the question ahead of time. No surprises, no bait and switch. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. Let's look again really quick. If you look down in your Bible, Romans 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, spread to all people, because... All sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin was not charged to a person's account when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. What's being said here is that everyone dies because everyone sins. Or you could say it a different way. You could say it this way. We know everyone is under the curse of sin because everyone dies. That's the first point that Paul's making. That's that's his first push in this section of Scripture. Verse 12, it says, Just as sin entered the world and death through sin, or in another way you could say, Like how sin and death are in creation, death spread to all people because all sinned. Some connection there. What, what is this way? How in this way did death spread to all people? In what way? Well, here's what we know. We know that Adam broke God's command. The command was in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. It says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you will eat from it. You will certainly die. I want you to notice something. If Adam could die on that day, 
then it means that he was alive. In that state, he was alive and he had a choice. He had a choice in that moment. He had a choice to not sin and therefore stay alive or he could sin and die. He had a choice. And darn it, Adam, you done messed up. He chose poorly. He died when he violated God's command. And people kind of get hung up on that. Well, he's still walking around. He's still alive. No, he died. His status changed. The possibility of living forever and, and living in the plan that God had for him was no more. He became like a man on death row with no more appeals. Dead man walking. And he knew it. Physical death was now a guaranteed reality of his future, and spiritual death was a reality when he was cast out of the garden and cast out of God's presence. He died. He was alive. He chose poorly. He died. Okay, we get that, but why do Adam's children die? Why do they die? They didn't have the possibility to obey the one command that God gave, and God didn't give any new commands from that point. They didn't even have the possibility to disobey it. They never were in the garden. There was never even an option for them. Why do they still physically die? Because they're dead from the beginning. Because of sin. Wait a minute, hold on. Time out. What law did they break? What command of God did they break to warrant a death penalty? What did they do? There wasn't even the law yet. Paul answers this question for us. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, In fact, sin was in the world before the law. But sin was not charged to a person's account when there was no law. Okay. Nevertheless, underline that, nevertheless, even though that, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Whoa. They didn't commit a personal sin by disobeying God, but they still died from Adam to Moses. This is Paul's argument. I mean, this is what's going on here. Just as, or in the same way that death entered the world all people have sinned today, and all people die. Okay, in what way? Well, in our nature. It's in our nature. It's now in our very being. Sin changed Adam's nature. Sin changed God's creation. The sin nature gets transmitted from Adam to his kids from those kids to their kids, all the way to us. Genesis 5 tells us that Adam had a child in Adam's image. Adam's image had this cancer. It had this blemish. For any of you who were growing up in the 80s listening to a song on a cassette tape, and if there was some disturbance, you switch channels when you're recording it and switch back or something, and then you made a copy of that, that shows up in every copy. You can't fix what was marred in the first. Even if we don't commit a single personal sin, even if it were possible for us to live perfectly, we still have a sin nature. From Adam, 
And that sin nature causes our death. We are born with a sin nature. We are born into the family curse. We are born into judgment. Just by the nature of the citizenship of being born into the world. We're born dead. We're stillborn. Because we're born of the sin nature. We're not born alive. We don't have the option. When we understand what we inherited from Adam, when we get this, when we see it, the sin and the sin nature, then we know we have a problem, don't we? We go, man, this is bad. I need help. When we see it, we know it. I need help. Now, what I've just shared with you is the first part of the equation. It's the first part of what we're talking about here this morning. And if you're not in agreement with what the Bible says, if you look at that and go, that's that's hogwash. If you don't believe what the Bible says about Adam, about sin, and about how he imputed death to all of his progeny, then I don't think you're going to need to see what Jesus has for you. You're not going to be as concerned about what he could impute to you. And frankly, I don't have anything more I can say to help you. I don't have anything else. It's all I got than what's here. But if you believe that the Bible might be right about what it's saying about Adam, about sin, about our sin nature, if you heard this and went, that might be true. That might be true about me. Then I have something really good for you. Really, really good news is coming. Let's look down at verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read it again because it is refreshing. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass many died, that's talking about Adam, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And this gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation, But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through the trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also... One righteous act, there is justification, excuse me, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as, though, just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Let's break this down, some pack it a little bit. What is the gift that Paul's talking about? I don't know if you noticed, he mentioned it five times in what I just read. Five times. Five verses, five mentions of this gift. In Romans 4.4, he says it's not pay. The gift of God is not pay or something owed to you or something you can earn. Romans 4.4 says it is free. Romans 6.23 has a definition. Here Paul says the gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the gift he's talking about. That's the definition of this gift. Eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this gift is different than the trespasses in so many ways. I mean, this thing is just packed with differences. First, the trespass, that first sin, Adam's sin, brought death and destroyed life. Period. Well, this gift gives life. And not only just redeeming what was broken, but actually gives life well beyond, to the fullest, to an extreme. You might have saw in verse 15, this gift overflows to many. What's that about? Everyone born received death, and that was it. It was universal. This gift, however, flows out from those who have received it, both by proclamation and by the way God saved people who've received the gift are then charged to bless others in continually multiplying ways. This gift has a continual giving factor because those who've received it get to be a part of giving it. They get to be a part of blessing others. They get to be a part of the task of bringing life because it overflows. One of my seminary professors used to say that Your ministry is nothing more than the overflow of Jesus Christ in your life to others. Your ministry is nothing more than that. If Jesus is overflowing out of you into others, that's your ministry. And I certainly hope that can be said of us. And that can be said of your ministry. And how you have an overflow of Jesus coming out of you and into others. It overflows. It's a gift. And it's so much more than what we see in the trespass. We also see that this gift is is not equal to the death. Okay, if we if we put them on a scale, it's not like death weighs this much, life weighs this much. Death here, life actually far, 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 far surpasses death. It's so much more. It's so much greater. It's not a one for one. It's a one for many, many, many how much mores. The gift is better. Romans 5.17 says, Since by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more? The gift is so much better than the death. It's not that death is, or the gift is just redeeming and saving us from the death. If we didn't have the death in the first place, we still wouldn't have all that this life and this gift gives. This is so much more. And I hope you notice the comparison, this comparing and contrasting between Adam and Jesus. Let's see them through this picture of this one was this, this one was that. There's so much there. This section of Scripture shows us this idea of imputation more than any other scripture I can find in the Bible. It also shows us more about representation, or the theological term for that is federalism. This representation that Adam represented us as humanity, as creation, and failed, and Jesus represented us and succeeded. Romans 5, 18 through 19 again says, So then, as as through one trespass, there is condemnation for Everyone, Adam's sin, we all get condemned for it. So also, through one righteous act, that's Jesus' perfect life, work on the cross, earthly ministry, through one righteous act, 
there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So if you argue here that that Adam's sin or original sin is not imputed to us, and there are many that make that argument, many in our community who will make that argument, then you're also arguing that neither can Jesus' righteousness be imputed to us. I'll put it this way. When I hear someone say, I believe I'll be punished for my own sin and not for Adam's transgression, then I have to believe that person also is saying that she will be saved through her own works, not the works of Jesus. That can't be imputed, therefore this can't be imputed. So when someone's saying, well, I'm not punished for Adam's sin and I'm going to do my own works, that's not going to go well. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says, our works are on par with menstrual rags. That's not going to measure up well. We are under judgment for Adam's sin. That's what this text tells us. That is why we die. Adam's sin. All of us. But we can be saved through Jesus' righteous works. This text says that too. We are saved through his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his death on the cross in our place. We imputed our sin on Jesus. Or I guess God did that because we're incapable of doing that ourselves. Just like Adam's sin was imputed onto us. And the Bible says that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, he will impute his righteousness to us. We stop going our own way. We start trusting Jesus. And this is the equation. This is the gospel. This is what rectifies the sin in the garden. This is where redemption comes. This is why we get so excited about Jesus Christ on Sunday mornings. But you're saying, wait a minute. Hold, hold on. If this is salvation, why do we have the law? Why do we need the law? If it's just this simple, why would God give us the law if all you really need to do is say, hey, just trust and believe in Jesus for the free gift of salvation? What would be the point? Look down at Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. Paul addresses this. This is the law came along to multiply the trespass. What in the what? The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to deal with this more next week, but I want to ask this question. I want to try to make sense of the law and why we have it. How many of us weep over Adam's transgression? I don't mean sin nature. I mean his transgression. Like how many of you laid awake at night last night thinking, Adam, why in the world did you do that? You listened to your wife and the serpent and why didn't you protect? What were you thinking? How many of you are concerned about Adam's sin on a regular and daily basis? Why did you disobey Adam? What were you doing? I don't think we would think about sin much at all if it were only that. If we were only to think about what Adam did that gets imputed onto us, I don't think we would think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. I mean, honestly, there's all sorts of things that impact our life. We just 
don't think about. How many of you know what the national debt level is today? We don't think about it. We don't like it, but we don't think about it. So here we have a situation where we've got sin far removed from our everyday life. But remember Romans 3.20 when we went through that? It says the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Oh, we start to understand. We're, we're learning. Or Galatians 3.19 actually asks the question, why then was the law given? That's the question we're asking. And if you go through the following scriptures, it's a pretty large section there. The answer is in Galatians that the law serves as a guardian. It shows us that we're incapable of saving ourselves and we really need a savior. Every time we see it keeps it personal. It keeps it in front of us. It keeps us up at night to make us aware. It's ringing the alarm bells. Ring, 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 ring. You have a problem. You need Jesus. It's like when you go to the doctor and here you have raging high cholesterol for the first time. Now you're thinking about it. Now you're attentive to what you eat. But you've been told all along you're supposed to eat healthy. Now it's personal. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 7 through 8, he said this, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. You see, we become far more aware of our sin nature, the curse that's on us, the problem that's in us, the cancer that's there, when we actually grieve over our personal sin, when we see the ramifications and we see the consequences up close and personal and they keep us awake at night, when we ourselves have a command from God and then we break that command, oh, just like Adam did, helps us to relate to our father, Adam, and now we know there's a big problem. Now it gets real. Now it gets personal. The law was there to keep us from just pushing away from the problem. We think far more deeply about this when we come to realize that we personally drove the nails into Jesus' hand with our personal sin. Our sin nature put us there to punish Jesus with the Romans and with all those cursing him. Our sin nature made it so that we'd say, give me Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Our sin nature made it so that we'd mock and spit and scorn and our personal sin clanked the nail and the hammer together and drove it right through his flesh. Now we're there, we're culpable, no excuses, even though we were already dead men walking sinners. The law is a wonderful blessing that keeps pointing us to Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. Jesus said that the law and the prophets, Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, all this that's supposed to show us our need for a Savior, he said, the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Most of you are familiar with that. It's Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command for you and for me. That sums up all the law. How are you doing with these two commandments? Have you ever had a single moment in your life when you wanted something your way even a tiny bit more 
than you wanted it God's way. You ever said, God, why are you doing that? That's stupid. You should do this. Hey, I really want this more than that. I think I know better. Man, if I were God, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't. Have you ever had that moment? Ever? That's sin. And according to the law we just heard, your punishment is death. What a reminder. Has there ever been a moment when you turn to something other than God for comfort? Eh, tough day. Kick my feet up, have a glass of wine, check out from life. That's where I'm going to find my comfort. Have you ever turned to God for, have you ever turned to something other than God for wisdom? This guru, the world's ways. Well, God says this, but what about that? Have you ever turned to something or someone other than God for safety? For protection? For enjoyment? Sin. Have you ever neglected giving God your total attention? You didn't want to hear from him, maybe by his word. Maybe you didn't want to spend any time in prayer. Ah, not today. Didn't want to worship him. Didn't want to serve him. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe you've skipped your quiet time or your prayer time or you neglected your word or you neglected worship again because the lake looked pretty good. Your bed was pretty comfortable. Netflix was tugging at your heart a little more than... than you wanted God to be tugging. Hey, you go over there. I'm going to go over here. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said yes to something, but to say yes to something, you had to say no to God? Have you ever done that? Sin. Who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love more than myself? Jesus was asked this question, well, who's my neighbor? Basically, this person that you're supposed to love more than yourself, this person that you're supposed to value more than yourself, this person that you're supposed to think more highly than you think of yourself is anyone who is not you. Do you love the kid in the drive-thru who messed up your order again more than you love yourself? Do you value him more than you value yourself? Do you show him grace or her? Do you think more highly of that 17-year-old not taking her job very seriously, then you think of yourself. Do you love the person that's texting and driving and then just cuts you off and isn't even aware they cut you off more than you love yourself? Do you love and value and think more highly of the people who voted for the other guy more than you love yourself? Those people who think the world should work this way. Those people who think that humanity should be this way. Those people who think that life should be valued in the way I disagree with. Do you love them and value them more than you love yourself? And if you find out they voted for the other guy, do you still love them? In fact, what about that other guy? Or the one who opposes the other guy? Do you love the other guy? the one you didn't vote for more than you love yourself? That's hard. Do you think more highly of him than you think of yourself? What do you think of the president today? Or what do you think of the president's opponents today? Do you value them, love them, 
Think of them more highly than you think of yourself. If your answer is no, you're no different than Adam in the garden. We're no different because I have these problems just like you have these problems. Because everyone has these problems. Because we all sin and we all die. And that is the problem. We sure need Jesus, don't we? We sure need Jesus. The law shows us our sin, which also shows us our sin nature. Here's the good news. When we understand our sin, when we see this sin nature, when we see this curse and we are disgusted by it in ourselves, when we see it for what God says it is, when we finally understand it, when we finally say, God, you're right. Now we're in a position where we desperately need Jesus and his imputed righteousness. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. That's why he gave us the law. It's why he sent Jesus all the way back in Genesis 3.16 when he said there is a Savior coming who will redeem this curse. All the way in the beginning. Now we're ready for him, aren't we? Now we need him. Now we want him. I'm about to ask my final question. And I realize that there might be an unconverted Christian in here. Because most of us are looking around going, hey, the, the person who's never heard about Jesus, you need to hear the sermon. But the truth is, we all need to hear the sermon. And, and in this room, there might be an unconverted Christian. Okay, what's an unconverted Christian? That's somebody who's been hanging out with the church, maybe your whole life. That's someone who's been serving, maybe. Even been worshiping and participating with God's people. But down deep, he or she has not really grasped the magnitude of the need for Jesus Christ. Not really said, you know what, that's me. I am not in a good place, and I need Jesus. I am a sinner, and I need, maybe it's that person. Maybe you're somebody who, who echoes Matthew 7, 21. In that passage, Jesus says there'll be people who say, Lord, Lord. But Christ will say, I never knew you. That's an unconverted Christian. Maybe that's you. I've been reading the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm reading it really slowly in small doses. It's been taking me forever. He was a 20th century Welsh preacher. He experienced an amazing revival in his time. Um, he's a pretty remarkable man. In his biography, I read his wife was an unconverted Christian. She had attended church faithfully her whole life. She even sat under Lloyd-Jones preaching for two years before God opened her eyes and ears to make her realize, I need to weep over my sin. I am wretched. I need Jesus. It's not about attendance. It's not about marrying the right guy. It's not about doing the right things, giving the right amount of money, serving in the right way. It's not. It's about the reality that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Two years into this, when she stood before the church, that must have been such a moment, saying, turns out I wasn't really the believer I thought I was. She faithfully did that. Another person, a prominent person in the church, did the same thing. He was a church secretary for years. After his wife stood up. That means more than two years even under the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preaching of the faithful preacher before. This person was there. Stood up and said, I was an unconverted Christian. 
But both of these people converted to biblical faith. And how about Martin Luther, the most serious of the monks, doing everything he was told to do, reading the word, living the word. And then he read, the righteous shall live by faith. And he realized he was an unconverted Christian. And it radically changed his life. If you're in here, and you may be an unconverted Christian, then my question is for you. If you're in here, and you've never heard this before, this is new to you, and you're realizing, you're feeling the burden and the weight of the test I just gave, that you are under the curse of sin. That's God getting your attention. That's a gift to you. That gives you the opportunity to turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Maybe that's you. The question I'm about to ask is for you. I just, I need to share that we're either dead, still like what we were born under Adam, or we're saved, but we're in love with constantly dabbling with death. We're enticed by the world and the world is in death, or we're alive in Christ. Those are the three options. You're dead, you might be saved, but you're so prodigal and you love death, or you're alive in Christ. That's why this question is not to be ignored. Are you prepared for the question? It's my hope and it's my prayer that you heard Paul's argument. It's my prayer that you don't need to keep thinking about it. Now, I realize you might need to. You're not hearing clearly you're wrestling with it, but I sure pray that's not the case for you today. So no matter where you might be, here's the question we need to wrestle with. Are you ready to be made righteous or would you rather remain in death? Are you ready to remain righteous? Excuse me, are you ready to be made righteous? Or would you rather remain in death. Let's pray. God, you've put before us in your word heavy truth, but heavy relief. You've put before us in your word condemnation, but redemption. We see in Adam we're dead, but in Jesus not only are we made to have a heartbeat, made to be spiritually alive, made to live forever, but God also made to live in the fullness of what you've designed for us. In Jesus Christ, Lord, we get to participate in the blessing, the overflow of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we get to see how our wretchedness is redeemed, and that gives you glory, and we worship you for it. Lord, it's my prayer that each and every one of us see our sin nature this morning. We see how we disobey your commands constantly. Lord, it's my prayer that we also see how much more fantastic Jesus is, that he would save a sinner like me, like us. It's my prayer, Lord, that you would move people from death to life. It's my prayer, Lord, that we would make the proclamation of the world and Jesus would overflow from us and our friends and our family and our co-workers would go from death to life. 
It's my prayer, Lord, that you would do the work. Your word has been preached, and, and we've read it, and we've heard it. We have all the information, and Lord, now we need to have the transformation. It is my request, God, that any of us in death, any of us dabbling in death, any of us who've only been hearing this for the first time, or any of us who might even be an unconverted Christian, Lord, be radically transformed by the power of your gospel, and I'm asking that happens right now if it hasn't happened already. It's your work, Lord, to open ears and open eyes, to transform hearts, to save souls. And I am just pleading with you, God, that you would do that work to your glory and to the joy of all who you would save, who would live life in the design you have for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.